Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Amen. and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we're going to transition from uh, natural food to spiritual food here, because uh, grace works on nature. And in fact, one of the texts that we're going to be looking at this evening is where our Lord says in Matthew uh, 4, 4, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. So now we're transitioning to the bread of life that comes from the mouth of God. And so we've already made a, a really good tour of uh, the Gospel of Matthew over the past uh, three days. And I was waiting to see how far we got. And we got through everything that I was hoping we would get through. And so tonight is kind of the, uh, the dessert, um, having laid the foundation uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and dessert is going to be a leisurely deep dive into the readings for last Sunday, which was the first Sunday of Lent, and this upcoming Sunday, which is, of course, the second Sunday of Lent. And so uh, last week, we had uh, Matthew's account of our Lord's temptation in the wilderness, and this coming up week, we're going to get the account of the transfiguration. And it's always that way um, in Lent. The first week of Lent is always the temptation from the gospel of that year. And the second week of Lent is always the transfiguration from the gospel of that year. So we get Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the temptation. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into that. And in fact, uh, not only are we going to look at the gospel, but we're also going to look at the first reading for these two Sundays that bracket right where we are right now in the liturgical year. So uh, let's uh, begin by looking at the first reading for this past Sunday, which was from Genesis 2 and 3. And I have an excerpt up uh, on the screen here that Peter put up. This is not the full first reading from last Sunday, but some excerpts. And I want to talk about this. This is the 
the temptation narrative of Genesis 3 of our first parents of Adam and Eve. And we read that the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. A couple things going on here. First of all, the word cunning in Hebrew is arom, and the word naked in Hebrew is arum. So they sound almost alike. It's A-R-O-M versus A-R-U-M. And of course, in Hebrew, they originally spell without vowels, so the consonants would be the same. So there's a play on words here, brothers and sisters. This cunning serpent is going to lead to the nakedness of Adam and Eve, from Arom to Arum, okay? And uh, there's actually a lot of these kind of word plays are happening that we don't notice because we're not uh, reading in Hebrew. Let me mention something else that's really interesting in the Hebrew of last week's uh, first reading. I just had that uh, excerpt up on the screen, but actually last week's reading began all the way back with the creation of man. And our mass translation uh, read uh, last Sunday that uh, God made the man from the clay of the ground. That's actually not a very literal translation. More literal is what my uh, NABRE, my New American Bible Revised Edition, reads in Matthew two. I'm uh, sorry, Genesis two seven it says, "The Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground." Now you might say, "Well, if it says dust, why does the mass translation say clay?" And why do we have this tradition that man was made out of the clay of the ground when it actually says dust? This is very interesting, brothers and sisters, but the idea of clay actually comes out of the verb that's used in Genesis 2-7. The, the verb, uh, when it says, the Lord God formed the man, that verb formed in Hebrew means to make something out of clay. We don't have an equivalent in English. If, phonetically, it's yatsar. And in Hebrew, if you yatsar something, it's to make something out of clay. And if you yatsar, that makes you a yotzer, a potter, okay? Someone who makes stuff out of clay. So the idea of clay is embedded in the verb for forming something. But then it says, he fashioned him out of the dust, and that immediately causes a problem because you're you're reading it. You're like, wait, you can't mold anything out of dust. That just doesn't work. You you know, if it's too dry, you can't form anything. So the question is, how did God form things out of the dust? And the way that the ancient Jews answered that question is that he spat on the dust. That's what the ancient Jews believed. Now sit with that a moment and think of the Gospels and who spits on dust to form clay? Yes, especially John 9 with the man born blind where God, Jesus spits and then just puts it on his eyes. And notice in John 9, Jesus doesn't smear the mud over the whole man's body because he doesn't have to remake the whole man. He just has to remake the defective part. 
So John Nigeus is like, oh, this one came defective out of the factory. Uh, it's got bad eyes. Okay, we can fix this one. Okay, we'll we'll fix the the defective uh, part here. We'll fix the eyes, and that that's Jesus. Jesus is what we call recapitulating the creative act of God the Father in in the making of the body, of the first man. So anyway, keep that in mind because that that Jewish tradition of God the Father spitting on the dust to form the body of the first man. This lies behind uh, Jesus' saliva and mud uh, healings that we find in the Gospels, two of them in Mark, uh, one in John 9, and, and a few, uh, some others scattered around. And by the way, it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that speak of mankind as being the saliva or the spittle of God, and that really make this connection. Okay, but uh, let's get back to Genesis chapter 3. It begins by saying the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals. And as soon as you see a snake there in Genesis 3, brothers and sisters, you're like, what is a snake doing here in the first place? Are snakes ever a good thing? No. Snakes are never good. So the very fact that we've got a snake in the garden means somebody has not been guarding the garden. And if you go back into Genesis 2, verse 15, you find out that God commissioned Adam to be placed in the garden and to work and guard the garden. That's what it says in Genesis 2, 15. I'm being very little, literal. Uh, the English usually says something like, placed him in the garden to till it and to keep it. But literally in Hebrew, it's to work it and to guard it. And those are heavily loaded terms, because if you search on work and guard in the Old Testament, you'll find that these verbs occur together only in the book of Numbers, where they together describe the priestly duties in the tabernacle. The priests were supposed to work the work and guard the guardianship. That's literally what the what several of the opening chapters of the book of Numbers say. Working the work meant celebrating the liturgy. Guarding the guardianship meant doing the guard duty that was appropriate to the priests and the Levites and keeping out anything that was unclean. So you take this information back to Genesis 2.15 and it, you realize, oh, Adam was the first priest and the garden was his first sanctuary. And he was supposed to celebrate the liturgy, and he's supposed to guard the garden. And then you get again to the beginning of chapter 3, and you read about this snake who's clever, and he comes in and he starts chatting with Eve, and you're like, no, 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 no. It never should have gotten to this point. Uh, Adam failed in his priestly guardship, guardianship even before they fell into sin through the eating of the fruit. So you see, brothers and sisters, the, the first sin is very complicated. There's many dimensions to it. There's a kind of uh, priestly uh, failure from the get-go, a lackadaisical uh, fulfillment of uh, the priestly duty that God made incumbent upon Adam, and this allowed the serpent in to begin speaking to Eve. And then 
Notice how the serpent begins to work on Eve. The first thing he says is, did God really say? Okay. Did, did God really say or did God really tell you not to eat? And so observe this. What the, what the serpent is doing is casting doubt on God's word. And this is often one of the first steps for us to sin. We begin to doubt the truth of God's word. Is this really wrong? Does the, does the Bible really forbid this? You know, I don't remember the Bible mentioning this. Maybe it's just the church that makes this up, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, and we begin to rationalize and it begins to work in our head. And if we've had scholarly, scholarly education, then we, then we can really rationalize. And, you know, nothing, uh, nothing helps you get around biblical commandments than taking a degree in theology. <laughs> that usually serves to help you get around actually having to do what the word of God says, you know? So did God really say, and then, and then the woman says, well, you know, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but it's only the one in the middle, et cetera. And, um, and then uh, Satan works, Satan proceeds from casting doubt on God's word to outright denying God's word. Because the next thing he says is, you shall not surely die, or you will certainly not die, depending on the English translation that you're working with. For God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like gods who know good and evil. So doubt on God's word, and then denial of God's word. And now Satan moves on to another step, and he creates doubt in the what we call the filial relationship, or the the childlike relationship between Eve and Adam and God as father. He creates doubt about God's fatherly goodness. And that begins to work on Eve's mind. Satan's basically saying, God is not a loving father. He's just a master who is holding out on you. And so we see strong themes of divine sonship, where we can broaden it and say divine childhood actually in Genesis, as well as in the gospel reading that we'll go to in just a minute. And this is this is something very profound for all of us to consider during Lent. Lent is a journey into a deeper experience of our divine filiation, of the reality of us being sons and daughters of God. Again, Jesus is proclaimed Son of God just before he goes out into the wilderness to experience the first Lent for 40 days. And then this, the, 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 the deceiver tempts him on his divine sonship. And so we are entering into this time where we're trying to, to claim our divine childhood more and more. And you know what, brothers and sisters, we think that all world religions teach that you are a child of God. But in fact, no other world religions teach that you are a child of God. It's only Christianity and especially the Catholic faith, because in in, pro, in some forms of Protestantism, divine childhood is just a metaphor, just like they think that the Eucharist is a metaphor. They don't believe in real presence, and they don't believe in real change of us at baptism. And, uh, you know, in Islam, uh, it, is, it is blasphemy to claim to be a child of God. In Judaism, it's just a metaphor. In Buddhism, divine childhood doesn't even make sense because 
Buddha didn't believe necessarily in a God. He was an agnostic. And you don't have to believe in God to be a Buddhist because Buddhism is about escaping the cycles of reincarnation. And forms of Buddhism that do believe in God often consider him to be impersonal, like not have a personality. So like being a child of God just doesn't make sense in Buddhism. You know, we could go on to other world religions, but only our faith stresses being a child of God. And divine childhood is present from the very beginning of Genesis when it says that man was made in the image and likeness of God. And you say, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness? Well, the Bible itself tells you because in Genesis 5, 3, it says that Adam begot a son, Seth, and Seth was in the image and likeness of his father. And that clues us in that, oh, light bulb, okay, um, image and likeness refers to how a son resembles a father. So taking that information back to Genesis 1.26, when we read that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, that means he was created in a state of divine sonship. And at what point in his creation did he become a child of God? Well, in Genesis 2, it speaks of him receiving the divine breath when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, which was the Holy Spirit. That's the point at which he becomes a child of God. And it's the same for us. It's when the Holy Spirit is poured out into us through baptism that we become children of God. Before that, we're just potentially children of God, but we actually become children of God when we receive baptism and are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Adam was filled with uh, the breath of God, with the Holy Spirit, uh, when his body was made. Okay, so we're moving on into the temptation in um, Genesis 3, and we've already seen, you know, a lot of factors leading up to this. Uh, Adam's failure of priesthood, priestly guard duty, uh, Satan casting doubt, Satan denying God's word, Satan sowing doubt about our divine childhood and our relationship to God the Father. And then finally it comes to a head in verse 6, and, um, and it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Okay? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Okay? Now look at this. Good for food is her physical appetites. Okay? So the apple appeals to her to her physical ap appetites. Just it looks juicy, it looks sweet, it looks tart. It's a it's a juicy wine sap. She just wants to take a bite and let that apple juice trickle down the back of her tongue, you know? So she's ooh, you know, she's jonesing for that apple. And then and then it's pleasing to the eye. And uh, so the apple is bright. The apple is beautiful. It's shiny. It's red. She wants to wear it on a gold chain. It's bling. She wants to show it off in front of her friends. That's that's the that's greed. That's avarice. That's the desire of things for their uh, for their value or their beauty. And then finally, it was desirable for gaining wisdom, but not just any wisdom, but the same wisdom that God has. That's what the serpent promised. You will be like God, knowing all things, you know, everything from good to evil, everything from the best to the worst. That's what we call a merism. It's like a whole spectrum. So you're going to be like, you're going to be omniscient, like God, okay? So the snake promises them divine omniscience. So it's like an ego trip. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to like know all things. You know, I'm going to know everything from the best to the worst, blah, 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 you know? 
there's a little bit of dark humor in the passage, brothers and sisters, because you know what? There's only one thing they actually find out from eating this fruit of omniscience, right? <laughs> and that is what? <laughs> They're naked. <laughs> so, and I know all things. Now I know I'm naked. <laughs> okay. So that illustrates how when we when we try to steal knowledge or try to steal divine benefits, it ends up backfiring and only revealing our vulnerability. That's that's what this what this narrative is telling us. Okay. It just reveals our vulnerability. So she falls prey to, you know, her physical lusts, her the desires of her eyes for wealth and beauty. And her ego trip that she's going to be as wise as God. And uh, she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. It's a very important line. Because we want to say, you know, we're watching this snake chat with this wife. And you're like, where's Adam? You know, come on, Adam, do something. Stop this. You know, put the brakes on this. And we think, well, maybe he can be excused. Maybe he was, you know cultivating the garden over on the other side. No, he's there the whole time, okay? So he's really being negligent. It's this priestly negligence. And he ate it, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, arum, okay? So we've gone from the cleverness, arum, of the snake to the nakedness, arum, of the couple. And uh, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. That's that's pretty inept. I don't know if you've ever tried wearing leaves. Uh, I haven't personally, but uh, there's a reason why it's never caught on. Uh, <laughs> not too rugged, not too comfortable. You know, so again, it's like revealing the the ineptitude. All right, let's move to the gospel reading for, from last Sunday, which was the temptation in uh, the wilderness. And... Um, there's so much going on here, brothers and sisters. I mean, we could spend all of Lent reflecting on these readings from the first Sunday. It says that, uh, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward, he was hungry. Does that sound kind of funny to you? I mean, I fast for 40 minutes and i'm hungry already and jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and then after that he's hungry well actually there's a physiological reason for this because if you ever do long fasting which i've done a couple of times in my life and have had some friends who do it more but um when you do long-term fasting after about four to five days your body shifts into fat burning mode and you start burning your body fat, and actually your hunger pains even out, and you're not you're not craving stuff all the time, and you're at a kind of uh, place of peace until you run out of your fat reserves. And when you run out of your fat reserves, then your body starts breaking down your muscle. You start literally digesting yourself to stay alive, and at that point, the hunger pangs come back in a terrible way because you're literally dying at this point. So keep that in mind. Jesus is now dying, okay? And um, and the tempter approached him while he's dying. 
and said to him, if you are the son of God, now notice that, like, if we read in the previous passage, that was the baptism, and God's voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God said that. There's no if, and, or but about it. Jesus is definitely the son of God. So, but it's it's the same as with the woman in the garden. Satan is casting doubt on God's word. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know, trying to lure Jesus into a trap as if that were possible of doubting God's word and then being tempted to, you know, do some kind of uh, experiment in order to confirm God's word rather than simply believing God's word. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus is not lured into this trap of doubting the word of God. He knows the word of God too well, and he responds to temptation with God's word. Now, brothers, this is is too long of a story for me to get into this tonight, but I was converted by a Bible-toting Catholic. Can you believe that such a thing exists on the planet? But yes, I ran into a Bible-toting Catholic who kept a New Testament with him. And this Catholic knew his Bible so well that when I would challenge him on Catholic teachings, he did something that I thought was very unfair. He would respond by quoting from Scripture. And I was like, wait, you can't do that. You're Catholic, I'm Protestant. I quote the Bible, you quote the popes, you know? This is against the rules. I don't know who wrote the rules, but whoever did, I'm sure this is against them. You know, you Catholic are not supposed to be able to quote the Bible to defend your beliefs. And yet he did. And Pope Francis over a dozen times has encouraged us to uh, carry a a New Testament with us. Uh, I I try to always carry one in my um, coat pocket. You know, if you have a handbag or a purse, you can carry it there. I I bring these to conferences. I I, uh, sell these or give these away at conferences and stuff like that. I go through several hundred New Testaments every year, uh, distributing them um, to students as well, you know, trying to encourage everybody in obedience to what Pope Francis is encouraging it to, to have the Bible with you and to read from it daily, okay? And look at our Lord. Our Lord sets the, the you know, you know, I was going to say, our Lord's like a Protestant because he can quote the Bible, but that's not it. Our Lord was Catholic, Okay. Our Lord was Catholic, and he quotes the Bible. So he sets an example for all of us. And so he he escapes temptation. But this is also true. See, temptation always has a spiritual warfare dimension to it. And when we can quote God's word into the situation of temptation, oftentimes we can break through kind of the spiritual oppression that's going on, and we can experience victory. And Jesus shows us how to do that. But in this first temptation, let's notice... The, the tempter says, turn these stones to bread, which is appealing to Jesus's physical desires. You know, he's so hungry. And, and so the, the tempter is saying like, you know, it's wonderful Middle Eastern bread, you know, just hot out of the oven. And, you know, it's got some rosemary and thyme and something like that sprinkled on it. And it's just wafting through the kitchen and, you know, turn the bread into, turn, turn the stone into that kind of bread. And so it's appealing to 
his physical senses, just like with Eve, good for food, right? That was the first, first temptation with Eve, but Jesus comes through it unscathed. And then let's look at this next temptation. Uh, according to Matthew, the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest, da- lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, this is very clever. Look at, what, look at what the devil is doing. Again, he's casting doubt on God's word, if you are the Son of God. Not only on God's word, but on the filial relationship between the Father and the Son. He's calling into question Jesus' status as a Son of God. And I, I said that's that's behind that's in the background of Genesis, uh, you know Adam and Eve as son and daughter of God, and then the tempter saying, you know, God's not your loving father; He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to realize your potential. Blah 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 blah, casting down that relationship. And so again, casting down on Jesus's divine sonship, His divine filiation. And then and then Jesus is like, I'm sorry, Satan is like, hey, two can play. The Bible quoting game, you know, I can be a Bible scholar too, says Satan. And he quotes from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's very significant. There is a reason, brothers and sisters, that Satan knows Psalm 91 very well. And that's because Psalm 91 is the quintessential exorcism psalm. I've done studies on this. We, we, When I was a Protestant deliverance minister, we used to use Psalm 91 in the context of deliverance ministry. I later found it's one of the psalms approved for recitation during the solemn rite of exorcism in the Catholic Church, and it was also used by the Essenes at Qumran for exorcism. So, Satan is quoting a psalm that he has heard hundreds of thousands of times as he's been driven out of people. He knows Psalm 91 very, very well, okay, from people chanting it at him uh, when he's been driven out. And so he quotes this to Jesus, and then Jesus answered him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, so Jesus will not yield. He comes back again with Scripture. He stands on the Word of God. But let's talk about the nature of this temptation. The nature of this temptation is really for Jesus to make himself into a celebrity. You see, the the temple court was the most public area in all of Israel. It was the equivalent of Times Square. You know, we have the ball drop on New Year's Eve at Times Square because it's kind of like the uh, you know the the psychological social you know center of American culture you know it's like the the national square you know and uh, and if you do something in Times Square there's so many cameras and so so many people around Times Square you can't do anything secret in Times Square right so it would be like going to a skyscraper on the edge of Times Square and throwing yourself off and and you're going to be written up in the New York Times which is the country's paper of record right. And if you do that, you're going to be on, you know, Good Morning America and uh, and all this stuff. So the temptation here that Satan is putting to Jesus is, Jesus, pull a stunt, pull a miracle 
in the most public place of the nation, and you will be at the talk of the town. You will be on the front page of the Jerusalem Times. You will be on Good Morning Jerusalem. You will be on 60 Ticks of the Sundial. Uh, you are just going to be, you know, they're going to be sticking microphones in your mouth saying, Jesus of Nazareth, what was going through your mind when you were falling from the parapet of the temple, you know? And and you're going to, and that's a real temptation, brothers and sisters, because you might think, well, that gives me a huge platform, right? If I pull this public stunt and I become a celebrity, that gives me a platform and I can share the gospel, you know? So, but, but deep in there is a ego trip. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to become the talk of the town. I'm going to become the toast of the nation. It's really deeply an appeal to pride, an appeal to pride. And Jesus resists and says, no, you do, shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the, the final temptation is this. The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And some translations read, and their riches. Okay, their doxa can also be translated glory. Okay, show them all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory or their magnificence or their wealth. And he said to them, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and let and him alone shall you serve. And the devil left him. But here is this temptation to the eye. See, he showed him all the kingdoms and their wealth or their glory. Okay. So just like good, you know, pleasing to the eye, good for food and pleasing to the eye. Good for food is the stones to bread and the and the fruit, obviously, and pleasing to the eye is all these nations and their and their wealth. And then, of course, pride is, hey, become a celebrity. So when we see that, we see that Jesus' temptations in the wilderness are tracking with these three basic uh, forms of temptation that are written up by the Apostle John in 1 John 2, uh, 15 and 16. And this is a very famous passage of Scripture um, that gives us something that we call as Catholics uh, the threefold concupiscence. So St. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, okay, physical desires, the lust of the eyes, it's greed, avarice, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And many scholars think that in 1 John 2.16, St. John is just going boom, boom, boom down the temptation of Eve in Genesis 3-6 and breaking down what's going on with the good for food, uh, pleasing to the eye, desirable to make one as wise as God. He's kind of summarizing that. These are the three main ways that we are tempted to sin. Concupiscence is not sin, but concupiscence is the weakness within us that can lead us to sin and it genuine, uh, generally manifests itself in these three ways. So not only is Eve's temptations like this, lust of the flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life, but 
Our Lord's temptations also track with that. One is lust of the flesh, one is lust of the eyes, and one is pride. And Jesus defeats them all by standing on the word of God, affirming the word of God, which, of course, is very instructive for us. And this is the way, too, for us to resist temptation. But there's another subtle thing going on here, brothers and sisters. You notice Jesus quoted three times from God's word. Yes, but did we take a moment to check where in God's word he's quoting from? If we took a moment to do that, we would discover that Jesus was quoting three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And as soon as we think, oh, he upholds the book of Deuteronomy three times, as soon as we say that, it immediately makes us think of a very, very famous figure in the Old Testament who is alluded to constantly in the Gospel of Matthew, who broke the law of Moses, who broke specifically the book of Deuteronomy three times. And that figure, of course, is Solomon. Because Solomon was the son of David who built the temple, and David commissioned Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2 on his deathbed. David told Solomon, you must keep the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, which, which refers to Deuteronomy, because the other laws were from God on Sinai, but Deuteronomy is actually from Moses himself. The law of Moses had three regulations on the king. The king was not supposed to multiply wives and have a harem, which would be to give in to his physical desires. He was not supposed to multiply gold because that would be to give in to his greed. And he was not supposed to multiply horses and chariots, which would be to create a big army, which would be a source of pride for him as a king. So we recognize the threefold concupiscence there. And then, so he's warned he's got to limit his, he's got to fight against the concupiscence. And then when he sits on his throne, he's supposed to write a copy of the book of Deuteronomy and keep it with him and read in it all his days of the life, keeping all the words of Deuteronomy. Well, you think it's accidental then that Jesus, the royal son of David, with that genealogy just a few chapters ahead, who, you know, already, you know, we've seen wise men coming from the east to bring him gifts. The last time we saw that was with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, you know, and now he quotes from Deuteronomy, which the son of David was supposed to write out and, and basically memorize and keep with him during his kingship, you know. And, and when this is over, he's going to return to Galilee, and he's going to re, he's going to preach, repent for the kingdom is at hand, right? So this is all part of the royal royal theme. So Jesus is showing himself to be a better son of David than Solomon, Solomon who famously had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. Uh, you know, anytime your wives are more than double digits, I would say that you are multiplying at that point. Uh, and then he had also, Solomon had 
So, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, you do the math and and Solomon had a a wedding every weekend of his entire adult life. And, uh, you know, it took about two hours for him to kiss all his wives. Good night. You know, I had to line up in a formation and march past. He's going. <laughs> so anyway, so this is Solomon with his many wives. And then he also multiplied gold. He had 666 talents of gold a year, according to 1 Kings 10. Yes, that is where the number 666 comes from, brothers and sisters. It comes from Solomon disobeying God's law and multiplying the gold. And then he also had uh, so many horses and chariots that he had to set aside cities for them. We would call them military bases nowadays. And so he he gave in to the threefold concupiscence in all these ways by breaking the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, and then Jesus upholds all of these points, okay? But this is instructive for us at the beginning of Lent because Lent is one long fight against the threefold concupiscence. Through our Lenten practices, we are striving to become royalty. And the first step in becoming a king or a queen is to learn to command ourselves. And see, a lot of people don't get this, you know? Being a king or queen doesn't depend on how much political power you exercise. It starts first with whether you are in lordship over yourself. And when you think about the the political people out there who exercise a lot of power, you know, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden and uh, uh, Trudeau up in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at their characters, all of these I was going to say, well, I was going to say something a little rude. But anyway, all of these characters that I just mentioned, they, um, they're they actually slaves to, in different cases, pride, lust of the flesh, you know, their physical desires, their greed, etc. And you can see it, and basically everybody knows it, one or more of those three things are really, con- you know, controlling them. For a lot of politicians, it's just simply pride, you know. But um, and, and so they're not masters of them own, their own selves. They're they're not. They haven't even taken the first step to becoming a king, even if they're you know titular commanders of you know the uh, most powerful countries on earth. So anyway, so back to this. So uh, Je- Lent is a journey toward kingship and queenship, learning to be royalty, and our Lenten practices are meant to help us with this. And so. Just like the ancient kings of Israel, we need to put to death our lust of the flesh, and that happens through fasting. Fasting is the control of the physical body. It it helps us control our appetite for food, but also we all experience this. It also helps us with other physical drives as well, and uh, so it helps to tame, uh, you know, the this unruly. Uh, lust of the flesh. And that theme of lust of the flesh, we saw that with the good for food in the garden, the many wives of of Solomon, and the desire to turn the stones to bread for our Lord when he was so hungry. And then almsgiving uh, eradicates from us the lust of the eyes. Nothing, nothing eliminates greed better than simply giving our money away. 
And that's, you know, pleasing to the eye for Eve, the much gold of Solomon, the all the kingdoms and their riches that Jesus has shown, all these are lusty eyes. But we can tame that and even eradicate that by learning to be generous and to give away our monetary resources. And then finally, prayer. Prayer is an act of humility. In prayer, we acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And that fights against pride, the pride of life, which was manifest in Eve by her desire to be as wise as God. And, and the huge army of Solomon was a big ego trip. And Jesus being tempted to make himself into a celebrity, etc. So prayer. So fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. This is 40 days to self-mastery. This is 40 days to experience royalty. And remember, Adam and Eve were uh, king and queen as well. They were given dominion over the whole earth, and they lost that dominion over the earth at the same moment when they lost dominion over themselves by giving in to Satan's lies and not trusting in God's word and not uh, trusting in God as their father. So uh, there's so many things that, that are you know wonderful to meditate on, and we're going to wrap up right there uh, just on that passage uh, of Matthew from the temptation account, because it's so rich for Lent. But uh, what do we want to work on during Lent? Well, uh, we want to work on, you know, trusting God's word, okay? Not letting Satan plant doubt there. And we want to work on embracing our status as sons and daughters of God. You know, I teach a lot of students here at, at Franciscan University, so many, so many of my students come in with uh, with wounds in terms of, uh, first of all, their natural relationship with their parents, usually with their father. Okay, not not experience the love of their their biological father, and then and then also not being able to experience God's love for them as a son or a daughter, and and always th thinking of themselves as a servant rather than thinking of themselves as a child of God. You know, but we can work on that during Lent, and uh, and and here. Here's a line from the baptism, okay? Uh, in, in the last verse of Matthew 3, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you're like me and you sometimes doubt God's fatherly love for you and you have, you know, problems with that kind of self-confidence of a child of God and really experiencing God's love, let me recommend a, a Lenten practice for you. Every morning when you wake up, take this verse and personalize it and say, I am God's beloved son, or I am God's beloved daughter, with whom he is well pleased. And brothers and sisters, if you are in a state of grace, that is true of you because you are in Christ. You are another Christ, okay? And if you're not in a state of grace, go to confession. And when you come out of confession, okay, and you're back in, in re relationship with God, then you could say, I am God's beloved son or God's beloved daughter with whom he is well pleased, okay? He really, he loves us. He is pleased with us. He made us. He knows all of our, our ins and outs. And, um, and then what else can we do during Lent? Obviously, the prayer, the fasting, the almsgiving, we lean into those. We ask the Holy Spirit to use those practices to teach us to, first of all, uh, rule 
ourselves. And once once we get that down, then we can actually make a progress and maybe start ruling our household. And, and then maybe God will start giving us further responsibility uh, to administer, just like he did for uh, the servants uh, with their talents in Matthew 25 in that wonderful parable. Okay, that's it, brothers and sisters. That was a 45-minute homily on the readings for uh, <laughs> the first Sunday of Lent. See, I, got, I we used to preach that long when I was a Protestant I, at this inner city church, and we would we would have services for two hours, and the preaching would go on for forty five minutes, and we would just go to town, and people would say Amen and get into it, you know, chant back and forth, and anyway, so it's good stuff. Let's. Um, I have a, f- a few resources uh, that uh, if you've enjoyed these four days, uh, a lot of what we've shared. Um, comes out of this book, New Testament Basics for Catholics, which you can get from AveMariaPress.com. Uh, all the, the stick figure drawings that we did for Matthew are all in this book. There are also stick figure drawings for uh, uh, Luke and John and uh, Romans and Revelation. So lots lots more biblical books uh, have stick figures there. Um what I just shared with you, a lot of what I just shared is actually in my commentary for the first Sunday of Lent in year A. And uh, this volume, uh, The Word of the Lord, year A, just came out a couple, uh, like three months ago from uh, from Emmaus Road Press here in Steubenville. And these are lengthy commentaries on all the readings uh for all of the Sundays and feast days of the liturgical year. This is volume A. There's also a volume B, a volume C, and then a volume for the fixed feasts that are tied to a specific date. So uh, you can you can pick that up if you like. Um, has like 10 to 12 pages. This, this isn't like a little paragraph. You know, like a lot of ministries send you a little paragraph on the readings, you know, to get you to think. This is not a little paragraph. This is like 12 to 20 pages of, you know, talking about, you know, the Greek and the Hebrew and the interrelationship and stuff like that. So it's kind of a deep dive. And then uh, lastly, um, building off of the uh, the book, Dr. Han and I about a year ago started to to take the book as a, as a springboard to have a conversation about the Sunday readings uh, every week. And so we started this video podcast called The Word of the Lord, and uh, you can subscribe to it. Every new episode comes out on Monday before the upcoming Sunday. And it's Dr. Han and I for 30 minutes going back and forth, back and forth on the readings and, uh, and you know, breaking them down and trying to get at what the, what God's trying to communicate to us uh, on that given Sunday. So you can check that out at uh, the St. Paul Center. Uh, dot com and uh, look for the word of the Lord. And uh, you can see where you might be able to sign up and subscribe to that. So let's throw it open for questions at this point. Wonderful. Well, truly spectacular. Thank you, doctor, for spending, you know, these four evenings with us. Thank you to your family for loaning you (laughs) for the evening Uh, this week. It's been uh, really a marvelous, marvelous journey. Doctor, what a gift those readings uh, from last Sunday, you know, that the the church gives us in putting them together like that. And then, uh, you know, weaving you weaving in other passages from other books 
uh, just a masterclass in reading this, the whole Bible as one, one book. So that, that was, uh, yeah, that was really, really a gift. Thank you. Let's jump in here. Okay. Uh, first from on screen, Deborah, go ahead. Yes. Um, thank you. I enjoyed all these sessions. I wanted to uh, ask about the gifts of the Magi, the, the, yes. the visit of the Magi. I wasn't aware that that was only found in the book of Matthew. So that was an interesting thing to learn. And last week I, I read through the book of Matthew in my Ignatius Bible. I was right reading on. comments and ex explains, as we all know, that what the, the meaning of the three gifts that the Magi brought. But then I, there's a note here from St. Gregory the Great that says the treasures signify gifts that we can present to Christ each day that gold is God's wisdom that we would shine out to those around us. Frankincense would be our prayer and adoration that we give to Christ. And the myrrh is our daily self-sacrifice. I thought that was so beautiful to look at those three gifts in a personal way. And um, with Matthew being the only one writing about the Magi in the Gospels, is would that have been maybe um, tied in with the prophecy from Isaiah that talks about these gifts? Oh, absolutely. Why That's... was he the only one that wrote about the Magi? Well, you know, the, the other, uh, well, John doesn't write about them because you've heard about them from Matthew. Okay, Mark doesn't write about them because he's writing a quick, you know, action novel for Romans and Romans, you know, want to jump right into the action. Uh, Luke doesn't write about him because he's following all the information that he gets from the Blessed Mother, and she gave him so much that, you know, he, he goes in a different direction and relates some different stories. But um, absolutely, you know, the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, is full of biblical meaning. The gold and frankincense are mentioned back in Isaiah 60 uh, as gifts that the kings of the earth will bring to uh, virgin daughter Zion, which is an image of the city of Jerusalem, but in a very special way is embodied within the Blessed Mother. So the Blessed Mother, you know, th this image of virgin daughter Zion that you find in, Z in Isaiah, it, it's actually the image of a young princess from Jerusalem of marriageable age, because Zion proper was was the royal compound. It was the it was the royal campus. Um, it was a section of Jerusalem where uh, the king and his family and his retainers and guards and everything lived. And so a virgin daughter from Zion would quite literally be a royal princess. And that's an image that's used as a metaphor for the city of Jerusalem and even for God's people as a whole. But then if you think about it, the Blessed Mother was definitely virgin daughter Zion, because she was of the Davidic house, she was of the royal house, she was a royal princess, she was the queen mother, and she was a virgin. And so here in the gifts, when the Magi come, they're quite literally, you know, kings of the east coming and bringing the golden frankincense promised in Isaiah to virgin daughter Zion, right? But then too, uh, if you look at the last two th elements, frankincense and myrrh, that's very interesting because frankincense and myrrh are mentioned together in the Bible only in the Song of Songs, that wonderful romantic uh, uh, poem in the middle of the Bible. And of course, the romantic hero of the Song of Songs is Solomon, you know, the son of David. 
And so the gift of the frankincense and myrrh is, is an allusion to the Song of Songs and to the character of Solomon, who in that song is this very desirable bridegroom. And it's marking Jesus off from the very beginning as the bridegroom Messiah. And then later in, God, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will tell parables about a wedding feast where he is being referred to as a bridegroom, like the parable of the wise and foolish virgins at the beginning of Matthew 25. In that parable, Jesus himself is the bridegroom that the virgins are waiting for. You know, so you, you have that theme, that theme of Jesus as our spiritual spouse, which is also alluded to by these uh, gifts of the Magi. So very rich. Um, thank you so much for that question and for your comments as well. Yeah, wow. Excellent. Uh, Dr. You you answered the question, you know, what what was this, or I guess posed the question, what was the serpent doing in the garden in the first place? Um, many people are writing in asking, well, what was the serpent doing at all in the first place? If God created all creatures, this one's from Matthew, uh, if God created all creatures and they were all good, why is the serpent portrayed as evil? Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's, that's a good question, but uh, serpents were universally considered uh, symbols of evil in the ancient world. So in Egyptian culture, uh, out of which the people of Israel were taken, um, the kind of the, the Satan figure in uh, Egyptian religion was a, an evil divinity named Apep or Apophis, who is this enormously coiled serpent. And in Egyptian mythology, uh, the sun god, who was the chief god, uh, went down into the underworld every evening when he set, and he fought with the uh, the uh, chaos serpent Apep, you know this this uh, evil evil Satan serpent figure all night long, and then arose in the morning victorious. And so the priests of uh, the sun god would gather and worship him when he rose every morning. Of course, when you think about that, think back to the plagues and how you know the three days of darkness where he doesn't show up, and to all the uh, the priests of the sun god in Egypt are are sweating bullets, thinking that the serpents got them this time, you know. So uh, that that's the serpents are uh, are unclean creatures uh, according to the law of Moses, and they are considered symbols of threat and symbols of evil. So. Uh, it's true. You know, God creates all creatures and the creation is good. But when we read the creation narrative from the perspective of the whole Pentateuch and from ancient Israel's perspective, it definitely makes us uncomfortable when we read about this serpent, because thereafter, serpents are symbols of evil. And in this case, the serpent seems to have been, as it were, possessed or have been uh, taken over as a mouthpiece for the evil one. Uh, later, you know, we'll see this in Revelation 12, where Satan will be called the ancient serpent, uh, referring back to uh, Genesis 2. So, you know, what, what exactly is going on there uh, is, you know, is an interesting question, you know, is, is, the, is the evil one possessing an animal, whatever. Um, I think we're going to get into the tall weeds if we get into that, those issues. But I think the important thing is to understand the the interbiblical symbolism of what's being uh what's being portrayed here 
and um, uh, Adam was supposed to keep out any threats to the health and the well-being of his himself, his wife, and the rest of the garden. And clearly, he's not doing that. If he didn't realize that the serpent was bad news initially, once he starts questioning God's word, he should have picked up and like, okay, that's enough. All right. I gave you a chance. You made me a little nervous. I thought I'd give you a chance, but at this point, get out, you know? So anyway, all right. For further study on this topic, we actually do have a lecture in our library from uh, Dr. Matthew Sakonikis called Returning to Paradise, the Exodus Narrative as Icon of Restoration. He does exactly what you're talking about, looking at Genesis through the Exodus experience. So I'll uh, I'll link to that uh, talk uh, for those who are interested in tomorrow's follow-up email. Uh, all right, another one from here on screen. Go ahead, uh, Maria. Thank you so much. I really uh, appreciated um, unpacking these stories that we've read so many times and still more to, more to know, more to understand. Can you please give us the sneak peek for next Sunday, for this Sunday, I should say, coming? <laughs> okay. Like a short, like what, what, yeah. Yeah, the transfiguration, absolutely. Well, the first reading for next Sunday is going to be the call of Abraham. And that's because these first readings through Lent of year A go through the great covenants of the Bible. Remember how the fourth Eucharistic prayer says, again and again, you offered them covenants and through the prophets taught them to hope for salvation. So the the first reading is doing that. It's journeying through salvation history. The first Sunday we have Adam and Eve that they were the first covenant recipients. Then we get Abraham. That's because we skipped Noah. Noah got a covenant, but we can only fit so many in during the Sundays of Lent. So we skip Noah. We go to Abraham. Then the following Sunday, the third Sunday is going to be Moses. And then the fourth Sunday is going to be David. And um, and then the fifth Sunday is going to be uh, the prophets. Okay. And so we're moving through... Um, these different stages of covenant history. And um, in, in that first reading, uh, Abraham is called and God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great, which means royalty. And through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. And that's salvation history in a nutshell. Abraham's descendants becoming a great nation happens under Moses. Abraham's name become, becoming great, which is means royalty, that happens under David, Abraham's descendant who becomes a, a uh, founder of a kingdom. And then blessing to all the nations of the earth is going to happen through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, in the New Covenant. So Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant, New Covenant. That's the, in, in that short little reading for this upcoming Sunday, all the salvation history is there in a nutshell. Um, so, so that's the first reading. And then in the gospel, which is the Matthew's account of the transfiguration, um, it, it, it's kind of a recapitulation of Mount Sinai because Moses himself went up on Mount Sinai and he took three assistants with him and that at the top, they beheld God's presence and Moses's face began to glow with light. So, so much so that he had to wear a veil over his face when he came back down. And um, and he and he spoke with God and communicated with God uh, up on the mountain, and even there's even themes like the glory cloud of God uh, overshadowing Moses, and he also overshadows uh, the apostles at this mountain. So, 
So this is this re, recalls Mount Sinai, and uh, Jesus is at the top, and at the top, Moses and Elijah appeared to him. They represent the law and the prophets, which was the Jewish way of referring to the whole Old Testament. And then, of course, Jesus is like the New Testament in a person. And so it's like the scriptures are all there, and it's the Old Testament testi testifying to the New Testament, testifying to Jesus. And they speak there. And then um, Peter, you know, puts his foot in his mouth. He's like, let me build three booths, one for each of you. That harkens back to the Feast of the Booths in Judaism, which was where they celebrated the tabernacle, uh, which is built as God's dwelling in the wilderness. And so Peter's problem here is he's suggesting that Jesus is just another prophet on par with Moses and Elijah. He doesn't yet perceive that Jesus, you know, is far and away above Moses and Elijah, uh, not just a prophet like them, but he's the God that spoke to them. And so this glory cloud comes down and overshadows them using a rare Greek word that's also used in, in Exodus 40, verse 35, when the glory cloud fills the tabernacle uh, and in other places as well. It overshadows them. And then when they when they come back to consciousness, all they see is Jesus. And, and that is um, represented to the fact that really the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Christ. And Christ is the one word of God. He's in a sense, all you need, you know. And so there he appears. And, and all of this too, not only recalls Sinai, but it also anticipates Calvary. Because here Jesus is glorified with a saint on either side. At Calvary, he will be glorified with a sinner on either side. At Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration, we can see Jesus's glory with our physical eyes. But at Calvary, we're going to need the eyes of faith to see the greater glory, because the glory of Calvary is greater than the glory of Tabor, because the glory of a God who conquers through weakness, self-sacrifice, and even death is beyond imagination. It's not, not what we expect, and paradoxical, and profound, and not what any of the great sages of world history anticipated. And so, you know, uh, uh, the... Um, the transfiguration is an anticipation of the cross. Just a few verses later in Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples for the first time outright that he's going to be arrested, captured, suffer, and die, looking forward to the cross. And then in, in all three of the first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the transfiguration marks the beginning of Jesus' death march to Jerusalem, which is going to culminate at Calvary. For the rest of the gospel, Jesus is going to be steadily moving south, down from Galilee to Jerusalem, and there he's going to go to his death. So if you remember the sound of music, and you remember the, what what are we going to do about Maria, right? And she gets married, you know, so that's what we're going to do with her. And then we've got the bells tolling for the wedding. But then it gets ominous, right? Remember, the wedding bell keeps tolling, and after a while, it's just one bell, and it gets very ominous, like, dong. Dong. And then the whole movie shifts. And the rest of the movie is filled with fear and angst because here come the Nazis, right? So the transfiguration is like that. You know, the transfiguration is glory, like da 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 da. You know, Jesus is shining with light. 
But then the bells are tolling and then it gets ominous. And the next thing says, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be, be killed, et cetera. I'm going to be beaten, right? So the rest of the gospel is filled with this angst as Jesus marches to his death. So that's a that's a sneak preview for uh, next week. Excellent. Well, thank you, Doctor. Well, I don't want to hold you too long if you need to get back to your family this evening. Would you have time for a couple more questions if we sure, go rapid sure. fire here? Almost, awesome. Yeah. Uh, a couple coming in uh, on the topic of the healing of the blind man, like you mentioned. Um, could you talk more about uh, you know the significance of doing it twice? Why did Jesus not heal him immediately? Um, and then Inez writes in asking, uh, you know, is she she remembers hearing somewhere that saliva is like concentrated breath? Does that does that have something to do with what's going on here? Yeah, the, the you know, there's different things. Like in some cultures, some ancient cultures, saliva was associated with healing. Um, I think there's a tradition that Augustus healed somebody by spitting on them. Uh, so there's a lot of different things going around. But I, I do think that the primary image is of the creator God spitting on the dust, because we can attest that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's it's the most proximate uh explanation you know because it's jewish culture from jesus time and so on um but um uh there there's one episode where jesus uh spits makes clay and he does it twice that's recorded in mark okay and um and the fathers understood that as uh kind of emblematic of um growth in knowledge of christ okay that we grow in our knowledge of christ in our life of discipleship and we don't we don't fully understand him when we are young converts, but we progress. And if we if we receive the sacraments, because this this anointing of the eyes is is an anticipation of the sacraments. If we receive the sacraments, our spiritual sight sight becomes progressively clearer. So that's that's how that was understood. Now in John nine, he doesn't do it twice. In John nine, he just puts it on once. And that whole episode in John nine, it's all of a it's. It's a mystagogy on baptism. If you think about it, we're all born in the darkness of original sin. Uh, we all need to be enlightened through the sacrament of enlightenment, which is, of course, baptism. And the, and the man, after his eyes are anointed, he's sent to the pool of Siloam and told to wash there. Uh, in, in Jewish belief, the pool of Siloam caught the, wa the waters of the Gihon. The Gihon Spring was named after one of the rivers that flowed out of Eden. So the Pool of Siloam was full of the, the waters of creation, the waters of Eden in, in, in Jewish mysticism. And so he washes in this Edenic water and he comes out and he can see and he's enlightened. Um, and, then, and then there's the darkly humorous account of his interaction with the Pharisees afterwards, where even though he's illiterate and never studied a day in his life, he defeats these these religious lawyers, these canon lawyers. He defeats them in theological argumentation by lining up a syllogism that they can't refute. And <laughs> he blows them away. And they're reduced to hurling ad hominem attacks against him. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, John has a wicked sense of humor. Let me just tell you that. You know, John, you know, he wasn't called son of thunder for nothing. And you think, oh, he's so peaceful and God is love, you know, but kind of read a little bit under under the surface of the text of the Gospel of John. It's freaking like, like wickedly dark, you know, jokes and sarcasm and stuff going on. <laughs> hey, okay, I, I, I got to move on. All right, what, what's the next question? 
Awesome. All right, we'll close with one more here on screen. Andrew, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to refer back to uh, Genesis 2.15 when you mentioned work until the land. Uh, Philo, um, who mentioned that um, we didn't require any labor. Then we also have uh, St. Ephraim of the Cyrian, who said, and I just paraphrased, uh, what did he till? He had no uh, art agricultural implements, uh, what would he have to clear when there's no thirstals or or thorns? And what did he have to guard where there is no feed? Uh, no guard was needed so long as the commandment was kept. Therefore, Adam had nothing to keep there except the law which was laid upon him and to preserve the commandment. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, was there a question in there? Uh, I'm just trying to say, like, between the fathers, some would agree and some are wouldn't agree. And as you can see, uh, St. Ephraim the Serena, like, I mean, are they both correct? Or is it is it, in a sense, a, a spiritual type of work different from regular work that we would be doing today? Like if you're a farmer, for example, tilling the land. Well, th this is what I would say. If, if we're reading Hebrew, again, it's not a till it and keep it. The Hebrew is work and guard. And I think that St. Ephraim, Ephraim's points are well taken, that if you take it in a, in a literal sense, which is what he's saying, he's like, hey, if you take this in a literal sense, it doesn't really make sense. But if you take it as referring to priestly duty, then it does make sense because the garden was the first sanctuary. And so he didn't have to like physically cultivate, but his work was worship as the first priest of all humanity. And his guarding was like a Santa from did like it was a religious duty to, you know, maintain the the law that he was given by God. And so that would actually work very well in taking work and guard not as literal horticulture, but as a priestly role. And you can tell, by the way, that the Garden of Eden is a sanctuary because in the ancient Near East, sanctuaries or temples would have one opening, they'd have one portal or gate, and it would face east, okay? Because the rising of the sun was, was the, 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 the east was regarded as the direction of divinity. And, uh, and at the end of the story, remember, the angel is simply placed at, on the east, right? And, and uh, the cherubim placed on the east are, are sufficient to keep Adam and Eve from getting back in, which implies that there's only one entrance to the garden and that we're dealing with a, a temple garden here. You know, so, I, yeah, I think, I think that works well, um, actually, with understanding. And, and there's, you know, on the issue of, of Adam as the first priest, you see that already in the ancient Book of Jubilees, which is considered canonical by, say, the Ethiopic Orthodox, um, very ancient pre-Christian uh, Jewish book. So you see it in ancient Jewish works and, and even modern. Uh, here, I got a book right on my desk. This, this book by uh, Catherine L. McDowell, um, The Image of God in the Garden of Eden. She's just doing everything from like modern linguistics and uh, you know, ancient comparative literature, and she argues that, oh yeah, the text is saying that that Adam was the first priest. So um, it, it's there's a lot of support for that idea. Wow, fantastic.
Well, thank you, doctor. We will wrap up there. Thank you all for joining us for this uh, Lenten retreat to kick off our uh, our 40 day pilgrimage to the cross. Doctor, could you close us in prayer this evening? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us faithfully to the end of this retreat on scripture uh, over the evenings of this week. Uh, we pray that you commend all that we learned from Scripture to our hearts, help us to recall it, and most of all, to put it into practice so that we observe it and uh, not be hearers only, but doers of your word, uh, so that we can hear the word of Jesus and do it and become like that wise man who built his house upon the rock. We ask this all through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.